Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHESS, I would like to welcome you to the CHESS Journal Podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHESS Podcast Moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great discussion on medical education. We are fortunate to have Dr. Viren Call and Dr. June Che as our guests, who were the lead authors on a paper in the May 2021 CHESS Journal, Med- Medical Education During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Dr. Call is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Kraus Health in Syracuse and an assistant professor of medicine at Sunny Upstate. His research and education is currently focused on the impact of technology in medicine, including defining digital sociomes of diseases and gamification of education. Dr. Che is an assistant professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She practices pulmonary and critical care medicine, and has an interest in medical education. She also serves in the CHEST Airway Domain Task Force and social media working groups, as well as the CHEST Critical Care Key Opinion Leaders Interview Pilot Subcommittee. So thank you both so much for joining us. To start with, why did you decide to write about this topic? What prompted you to look specifically at medical education during the pandemic? So Gretchen, thank you for having us. Um, this was in June 2020, approximately, when um, a group of educators from the um, American College of Chess Physicians met together uh, digitally. And by then, we were well into the pandemic with different uh, regions across the country in the United States and in different countries under significant duress from the pandemic. And as we all know, it did the, the whole paradigm of medicine changed, uh, right from how we deliver patient care uh, during stress times to deployment of uh, personnel, to resource allocation, and all of that had downstream effect on various facets of um, education. So once we all met together, we, in our different capacities at different institutions, realized that the impact this pandemic was having on education was pretty far-ranging and pervasive and most certainly will change um, education because education at the end of the day is intricately linked with clinical care. at that meeting, we decided to, you know, look into what has already been written. As you know, there was a deluge of literature out uh, with the pandemic, and we started identifying themes on uh, sort of different challenges that came up um, with education, and that's where we started from. And these are the themes that I, uh, I believe we're going to be going through with today's pandemic. So, let's talk about it. All right. So. There was a significant loss of income by medical institutions in early 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. How did those financial difficulties affect medical education specifically? Well, uh, again, Dr. Winter, thank you so much for for having us today. Well, this uh, this seems like in the distant past right now, actually, thinking about this again. And I'll bring up that in the first financial quarter of 2020, Healthcare spending was reduced by close to 20%. As we all remember, salaries were reduced, employees were furloughed, some were even laid off, and there were a lot of downstream effects of this financial squeeze, of course, on medical age education. 
And uh, both GME and CME funds were slashed or severely limited, and uh, travel for conferences were virtually banned, and uh, <laughs> pun intended. Um, and many institutions were unable to host educational activities or, or lectures anymore, uh, which offer many networking and collaboration opportunities in medical education. And programs were initially sort of stunned in the beginning, but Eventually, I think this hardship bred uh, creativity, which we'll discuss throughout this podcast. Excellent. So this pandemic, as well as 2020 in general, highlighted inequities in healthcare and our society. Can you discuss the pandemic's impact on equity, diversity, and inclusion with regards to education? So thank you for highlighting that we should focus on the educational aspects um, on how the pandemic impacted us. But the fact is, I do believe that it's still a part of the larger conversation that we all know happened in 2020, and the pandemic very clearly highlighted um, all the biases that we have as human beings, as a society. But some of the most sort of grave or easy to recognize aspects were the fact that, you know, once you have a crisis standard of care, similarly during this crisis standard of education, we notice that there's amplification of your usual cognitive stressors. So we all in the uh, field of medicine are under stress, and especially in the ICU or in the field of critical care, uh, tend to go under stress. So there's a study in um, from 2016 by Johnson which showed that in EDs, uh, when the EDs get crowded, post-shift, your biases are revealed more and more. So the heavier the ED workflow and workload gets, uh, you see this sort of bias, uh, the biases come out. And that's what we saw happen during this pandemic as well, understandably, once you're, you know, everybody's stressed out. Secondly, the impact on women trainees was significantly disproportional, or even women physicians was significantly disproportional because a lot of responsibilities at, you know, domestic and personal responsibilities went up with childcare impacted as it was. And we know that even before the pandemic, there's good data to show that, you know, women clinicians and women professionals are tapped to do less valued work. And we all know how much work went up. And so understandably during this pandemic, as AMC appropriately points out, um, women were tapped into do more and more of the less valued tasks and which is manifested in the fact that if you look at all the COVID-19 related research papers that came out, 23% lesser women were authors compared to men. Uh, and this, again, is from AMC, so it's definitely worth reading some of these um, sort of details that uh, have since been sort of put to light. And more importantly, I think we, we can we'd be amiss to not discuss about how the pandemic you know, impacted disadvantaged either trainees or even educators, because now you have a whole different paradigm of work, a whole different paradigm of interviewing and testing. So there's suddenly this gap in resources available that typically trainees would be able to access at institutions. Uh, students weren't able to go in and access these in person. So there's suddenly a, you know, sort of gap in mentorship, in uh, having uh, support, in having uh, opportunities for networking. And um, we'll discuss more how this impacted different levels of trainees. But these are the three major sort of um, impacts. The good aspect, I should say, is that 
Now it's even more in our faces. There's more recognition that we have these biases, these deficits in equity and diversity. And if anything we should take from this pandemic, we have more reason to be aware and to work towards fixing this. And have there been specific challenges for international medical graduates as a result of the pandemic? So IMG's... Um, and personally, being an IMG, I can I can share this from a personal standpoint. Uh, the issue became mainly related to sort of immigration, right? Because travel ceased, uh, ability to go between countries ceased. Um, so processes like getting a visa on time, uh, being able to start training, residency, fellowships, say mostly residency because you might be coming in from another country, uh, got stalled. A lot of people couldn't start their residencies on time. And this actually impacted both trainees, future trainees, and programs because now programs are left with deficits and, uh, you know, a shortened workforce during a time of stress. Similarly, train, IMG trainees who are finishing work and are now looking for jobs, they typically look, if they're on J-1 visa, they look for something called as waiver jobs. And as it is, waiver jobs can be hard to find for a number of reasons, but now with the financial crunch, sort of a decrease in hiring, uh, that became really, really difficult. And all these processes being time-sensitive really put a lot of international graduates in a predicament because there was a huge potential that they would have to go home for a certain amount of time before either being able to come back or maybe not at all. So that was that was a little bit of a scary time. I know of a friend, actually, and I know anecdotes, not evidence, but it's still true, um, who had to actually go home for a few months before the visa situation could be started, uh, you know, sort of sorted out before they could start. So there was a lot of uh, mental stress, a lot of uh, financial stress that came into play. And finally, for trainees who were wanting to come to the U.S. in the future who typically would have traveled here to gain U.S. experience, sort of bring themselves up to par with the system, understand how the healthcare system here works, all those opportunities went away just like they went away in U.S. med schools. So now you will have the next sort of crop of international graduates applying this year and the next who unfortunately would not be able to demonstrate having United States clinical experience. And that makes it really, really challenging for programs because they know these candidates are strong, but it's hard to tell if they will be able to fit into the system well in terms of knowing it. So a lot of challenges all around. Yeah. Now, you mentioned jobs. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected trainees who are interviewing for residency or fellowship or even attending jobs? So this goes a little bit to, back to the financial freeze, uh, right? Uh, because institutions can only bring on so many people. Um, you're already laying off people. You're in a duress. Um, so a, a little bit started from there. But then the problem also happened, how do you go through the process of interviewing? So, yes, we are moving, you know, institutions move to a digital platform, for example, for interviewing, but how do you even um, show the culture of your workplace to the trainee or to your next attending? How do you get them to meet your uh, colleagues in a natural environment? Because that's what we sort of look for at interviews, right? Can we work together? Um, are we going to truly be a good fit, say, culturally uh, in terms of achievements, right? And, and that was so hard to judge uh, virtually. But the other thing is, 
you also have to ensure that the typical biases that exist in us as humans, they don't get amplified. So, for example, I, you know, and there's a really good paper by um, Laura Hubert, actually, I think, I want to say it came out after hours, uh, or I should say it got published online after hours, and it's in academic medicine, and they talk about how there's a chance of increased biases with digital interviews. So, for example, you could potentially judge somebody for their physical appearance better. Maybe it could be bad lighting, maybe it could be the angle of the camera, but there's that. Technical challenges. So if the the candidate has a bad connection, if you know they're not able you're not able to hear them, you're not able to communicate. So you potentially have that break in communication. And then finally Imagine something as simple as backgrounds. We all know there are all these sites, right? Rate your backgrounds. And that's fun, but the fact is that is how much all these non-verbal cues impact us when we're interviewing. And so the worry is that all these things would come into play and amplify existing biases. There are positive, some positive elements to not having to travel everywhere. So the, you know, your, your travel costs go down, your you know costs for accommodating go down. This was both for the candidate and the programs. You have lesser time away from your work. You don't need to take time off to travel and interview. So there were some good aspects, and I think going forward, um, both programs interviewing trainees and future attendings may may consider like a hybrid model, right? So maybe when they're screening, they might consider virtual interviews and then come through it for a final in-person interview. So there are a lot of good things that are going to come out of this pandemic. And um, one of the most important ones in terms of interviewing is going to be standardized questions. I think we all have more than ever realized the, the importance of standardized questions and avoiding affinity-based questions because standardized questions allow you uh, as a program or as a set of interviewers to assess trainees of the interviewees in the same platform, uh, and that way there's less chance of biases creeping in. Great. So what changes were seen in testing and certification protocols during, during the pandemic in terms of MCATs and USMLEs and board tests? Sure. Uh, I'll take a... I'll take this question. There were many changes, as we recall. Um, in, in May of 2020, the USMLE announced the cancellation of the Step 2 clinical skills examination. And subsequently, many other national subspecialty certification and oral certifying examinations followed suit, and they were canceled and ultimately rescheduled. There was a lot of uncertainty about testing dates, about decrease uh, in testing site availability and whether ultimately learners would have their certification to apply and qualify for their next job. And that, that gives a lot of stress uh, for folks who are in medical school, uh, in residency, applying for their next, for their next job. Uh, additionally, many healthcare workers were working over hours. They were trying to uh, study as well, uh, and this this was just a lot of undue stress um, for workers. And so, really, the um, it was important for many of these uh, governing bodies to offer clear communication and to offer uh, flexibility uh, for for their testing and subsequent licensing. Now. This pandemic has affected a lot of us mentally as well as physically. 
and this is an area um, near and dear to my heart um, as the author of this section of the paper, but what have we seen in terms of the pandemic's impact on mental health and the wellness of students and trainees and educators, and what can institutions do to support the wellness of their learners and educators? This is such an important topic, and uh, everyone has been impacted by this pandemic, both mentally and physically, uh, both healthcare workers and civilians. And uh, early on in the pandemic, many healthcare workers were, in a sense, deployed to the front lines, working increased hours in the face of uncertainty, lack of PPE, facing a high degree of illness and death and watching too many patients take their last breaths alone. I think we have all seen this and experienced this, unfortunately. And there was fear that we would bring this home to our families, our children, our parents, and not to mention the stigma that many healthcare workers face from the general public initially. And in the face of this great stress, we were also at once isolated. We were isolated uh, socially, some of us, uh, there were a lot of quarantining orders, and so we were at home and all sitting with this anticipatory anxiety. Uh, we watched our colleagues in New York, California, Texas, China, Italy, Brazil, many places overwhelmed uh, with overwhelmed health systems, and we watched our colleagues get sick and die, and it really, really has been a lot. So with our educators in crisis mode, uh, which really had to be sustained over several months, to say the least. Where did this leave our learners? Uh, I would say probably even more scared and isolated and alone. And uh, their educators, their mentors were really pushed to the brink. Learners were unsure whether they would be able to fulfill crucial rotations that could potentially help decide their careers. They were essentially stripped of their crucial clinical time and hands-on learning. And... Uh, and many institutions actually came up with creative ways of fostering an environment to offer psychosocial support in the form of regular check-ins, virtual hangouts, wellness initiatives such as virtual yoga uh, and wellness, or quote wellness or quote recharge rooms for employees. Uh, various apps offered special discounts for healthcare workers for meditation and fitness. And if anything, our collective hope is that this pandemic brings to the forefront the the utmost importance of mental health and wellness among healthcare workers and that it also normalizes emotional expression and the importance of psychosocial support from our, our workplace. And, I, you know, the full burden of this mental health toll on us, uh, both as the educators and trainees will as healthcare workers at large, will likely be quite significant and certainly going to frame a whole generation of uh, educators and trainees moving forward. Thank you for discussing that. Um, how have social distancing guidelines affected educational delivery in terms of lectures and clinical rotations? So I think this was um, the delivery of education, I think, was one of the first um, aspects that, that kind of took a serious hit, right? As soon as we realized the social distancing is the way to go, um, and of course, you're the lead from the front. So the very first thing that went away is getting together in closed spaces. So with that, no more 
sitting together for noon conferences, no more sitting together for, um, you know, lectures, uh, grand rounds, the typical forms of sort of education during training. But then it also extended to, say, rounds. How do you justify rounding with a team of 10 people uh, together? So you can't. So that got impacted. Going back all the way to medical schools, their medical students couldn't come for a clinical rotation. So truly, I think education delivery was one of the most hard hit aspects of, uh, you know, that, that were impacted here. But, but what came out of this is that we as a field pivoted so quickly uh, to virtual learning that I, I think that revolution was sort of coming for a long time, even before um, the pandemic, we know that the in-person attendance at preclinical lectures was sort of going down significantly, and, and we, the data supports that. So I think that switch over to adapting to learners was already coming. Uh, a lot of programs are already offering, you know, recordings of lectures that could be viewed at home or, you know, innovative formats like virtual uh, sort of anatomy or virtual dissection uh, and then some other innovative hands-on learning opportunities like say game rooms you know game you know gamification or virtual gamification so all that was already happening slowly and i think this pandemic sort of pushed it forward so in some ways yes there was a initial compromise in education but then there was a pretty strong pivot which i think is going to stay with us for a long time i think the question is going to be you know, how did the, we know we did it. I know we, there's data now showing that we did it well. There's guidance on how to virtualize education. The question becomes, what is the learner perspective? So we are studying that now. Are the learners feeling this is the better way to go? So there is uh, a paper that we have not included in this, but which showed that digitally native learners, so learners from the current generation that have learned to be sort of, they've learned to sort of, gain education digitally, they actually do well with formats like podcasts or podcasts as opposed to, say, be giving them a bunch of a stack of papers. So this is going to be interesting. Maybe this is the way that we were going to go anyway. So, uh, you know, a silver lining here. You know, thanks so much, Dr. Call. And I, I think that also brings us back a little bit to Dr. Che's discussion of the mental impacts of the pandemic. You mentioned that noon conferences and things went away, and that was often when residents or fellows got their free lunches, is at the noon conference. And those were the times that they gathered together and talked to their friends and discussed their rotations. And it's not easy to get free lunch and to have these conversations over a Zoom lecture. So while I think people did do a great job of adapting and um, making the necessary changes while still maintaining education, I, I think that we need to recognize that there are mental and emotional effects of these distancing policies as well. Now, for the Absolutely. next question... Uh, for the next question, many medical students um, really wanted to help and pitch in however they were able, but weren't necessarily able to help clinically due to restrictions during the pandemic. What non-clinical ways did medical students find to pitch in and help out? Well, this was a, a really tough area to tease out in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, uh, as we remember, we were facing an unprecedented shortage of qualified healthcare workers. And we needed to really balance the safety of our medical students, the initial lack of PPE, and their clinical readiness to practice 
uh, with this with this clinical shortage that we were facing. There were other countries such as Italy, Ireland, and the United Kingdom uh, actually utilized their medical students early as healthcare workers, and uh, some students in Canada uh, were as well. And the AAMC published guidelines to ensure that students' participation with direct patient care was voluntary, uh, with guarantees of sufficient PPE, adequate testing, as well as healthcare uh, coverage. And importantly, uh, I think this is very important that efforts were made by institutions to prevent students from actually feeling coerced into uh, into service. So ultimately, this was a real risk uh, versus benefit assessment. And and like you mentioned, Dr. Winter, there were uh, in the end there were actually many solutions. Uh, many medical students uh, were able to serve and uh, help offload in non-clinical roles, uh, such as. With uh, tele support, um, there were there were medical students who staffed COVID nineteen call centers to to provide guidance on symptoms and when to seek medical care for patients, um, as well as advocacy support and developing educational materials, um, and also mobilizing to get more PPE for for staff on the front line, uh, as well as research support. And I would say this definitely provided some relief uh, burden for the, for the rest of the system, uh, and they were immensely impactful. In addition to medical students, many residents and fellows experienced alterations in their training due to the pandemic, either due to redeployment to other specialties or changes in educational opportunities if certain uh, patient populations weren't being seen or procedures weren't being done. Can you discuss how the pandemic has affected this postgraduate clinical training? Certainly. I think there were two elements to this um, impact on medical education. So the one was uh, trainees or even physicians, uh, say educators, were redeployed to critical care uh, areas who primarily were not critical care trained. So for these trainees, the biggest impact was on their specialty-specific education or case-specific education or, say, procedure-specific education. So imagine an ENT uh, trainee being deployed to the ICU. So they they did miss on OR time or learning about their ENT care. Um, And this happened for multiple reasons because not just that elective procedures and surgeries were down, but elective admissions of all sorts were down. Elective care was reduced. So that was one side of it. But the other side was the fact that trainees who were already in critical care specialty areas, for example, emergency uh, medicine residents or critical care medicine uh, fellows, they probably got actually pretty strong in certain aspects of their training that they were already going to get, but now they did a lot more of it and probably became stronger there. But again, even there, so suppose a POM grad fellow, their pulmonary, the non-critical care part of their education, obviously, you know, you know, was sort of diverted from their usual uh, paradigm. So that having been said, I think the, the other worry was not just what they were learning. It was also 
the fact that a lot of redeployed trainees were not adequately prepared. They were not, it was done in the, you know, surge of the moment in places like New York City where there was just not enough hands on board. And that can be very, very stressful. As both of you guys have pointed out, this can, we don't realize the impact of uh, putting people in this kind of duress. So, I worried about that, and then there's always a concern that, you know, we're exposing trainees to aerosol-generating procedures or just aerosol generation, you know, overall, and there was a safety issue. So I know that a number, if not all, programs took, you know, sort of steps to prevent training exposure. ACGME made it clear that trainees' exposure to uh, patients unnecessarily should be reduced. Um, so I think the medical community did come together to address the safety aspect. The other aspect, which is now how do we assess uh, the impact of this sort of change on their training, that is harder. So the uh, ACGME uh, did suggest that uh, there should be sort of new academic committees to facilitate um, setting scholarly goals for these trainees who had alterations in their trainings, making sure that we understand what an individual training missed out on, how can we help fulfill that gap now that we're on the, hopefully, on the other side of the pandemic. So I think as we go forward, that is something we're going to have to all think about um, to make sure that we give them their full um, uh, sort of training. The other um, one single uh, thing to think about is that something this generation of trainees is going to come out with is we all got our dose of emergency management experience, resource allocation experience. And while, you know, this is not something that's ideal, but it is a skill set that most have gained. Most were parts of their departments, you know, uh, plan or response to COVID-19. So I'm hoping that gaining those skills in the long term is going to give them a certain edge that maybe, you know, trainees in other years uh, wouldn't have got. And as we finish up our discussion, can you please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Well, I think one thing is that it is important to maintain hope. Um, one thing this pandemic has highlighted is the how resilient and creative we can be as, as a group of healthcare workers, as a group of educators and learners uh, to come up with creative solutions to, to enhance learning, to enhance cl clinical care. And I, for me, that's provided hope. And I think hope is so important uh, to, to move forward. I couldn't agree more with June. I think, um, our world has changed post this pandemic. I think we can all agree on that. I think the world of education and medicine has changed. And, you know, some of the change is good. Some of it we don't know about. But I think as long as we, you know, evaluate as we go forward, so what parts worked, what parts worked actually better, for example, the virtualization, um, and what parts didn't work, we in the process ensure that the traditional flaws like the biases we have, the um, uh, the pervasive issues with diversity we've had in medicine and in society, we don't continue per, you know, perpetuating them just because we went through a crisis standard of education. As long as we do that, I think the ongoing assessment and support eventually will bring out bring us out stronger and together. And and we, uh, the nice thing is that I think the world was together in this. There was no countries, there was no cities, there was no institutions, 
you know, we were all in it together, and which is why the three of us are here now. Uh, so I'm really hoping to Dr. Shea's point that we come out stronger and better and more hopeful and more modern and more effective. Great. Thank you both so much. Thanks to Drs. Call and Che for a wonderful conversation on a very important topic. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time. <laughs>